0: If you, mm. if you're solely involved in commodity tea, you're you're going to lose the game because uh, the price just keeps going down and down, and the costs keep going up and up. It's authentic. Yeah, tea has right at its core this sense that people pick it, that people with intelligent minds manipulate it and create different uh, flavors and different processes. Tea is vastly bigger you know people don't appreciate how much tea there really is but it's going to hit 297 billion liters in uh, wow. you know three years welcome to the tea
1: show welcome to the tea show
0: welcome to the tea show welcome to the tea show
1: welcome to the tea show welcome to the tea show, to the tea show. To the tea show. and this is to tea together way. thank you so much dan for coming on to the podcast to tea together it's an honor to record during the time of recording, it's your birthday. So, first of all, happy birthday, Dan.
0: Oh, thanks for that. It's been yeah. 67 uh, birthdays. I've got uh, four children, five grandchildren, and a wonderful wife. And you know, I live in a good place, and uh, my head's on straight after all these years. And I just feel, uh, you know, like I have meaningful work and a happy mm-hmm. life. And I feel like, uh, you know, 67 years is enough to give you some experience. So that's one of the joys I have nowadays is to, uh, you know, share that experience in my, in my life.
1: Right. So Dan, you are the publisher, I believe the publisher and editor for the T journal T journey magazine, and also the author and podcast host at the T biz blog and T biz podcast. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about, uh, just as a quick intro about your work in in tea.
0: Yeah, I will. Uh, I uh, am, am a journalist, and so first and foremost, I am not uh, a tea expert, nor am I, uh, you know, a grower or manufacturer. But uh, over many decades, some forty-six years now, I've worked as a journalist and. In each of those uh, roles, whether uh, I worked, for example, as a newspaper reporter and editor for 20 years, and I ran magazines and uh, edited magazines for about 25 years, that uh, during those periods of time, uh, I found myself focusing on extraordinary things. For example, I was Mm -hmm. the editor, I was a publisher of Animation Magazine, and so I got to meet the world's top animators, and I worked. Uh, with a film and video magazine called Below the Line, and that was extraordinary. I created the Certified Organic Food Directories in 2000. And wow. one of the things that caught my eye back in those days uh, when I was launching Natural Food Magazine was organics. Uh, hmm. uh, I would call people who, were, uh, uh, who had qualified for a U.S. government uh, National Organic Program certification, and I would talk to them about uh, what they created. Uh, so companies like Choice Tea, for example, back uh, in right. the Northwest, were uh, one of the very first organic uh, tea companies. And they explained you know, why they were organic and what, what, what it was about their tea that made it special. And uh, this was an early introduction about 20 years ago uh, to tea. At the same time, I learned about coffee, I learned about organic corn and produce Mm. and such. And uh, surprisingly, when my company was bought, the magazine was bought, the company that bought it had 16 magazines, one of which was a coffee magazine. So I ended up being the uh, editor in chief of the largest coffee magazine in the United States uh, called Specialty Coffee Retailer. Mm -hmm. And during that time, Tea became very important to the coffee industry. Uh, uh, there was a slack in every day's uh, uh, sales. In the, in the early uh, afternoon, mid-afternoon, sales fell off. And so retailers understood that if they brought tea in, and it was good quality tea, that they could charge... Uh, more than teabag prices for it right. and as a result they generated significant revenue so every year i decided i would have two issues uh, of the 12 devoted to uh tea so i do one in the spring and one in the fall and right. uh, you know most of the time i was traveling for coffee most of the time i was learning about coffee and and writing about it but i would also go to a, a local event called the uh, World Tea Expo, and I would go to a couple of tea events uh, in North America, like the North American Tea uh, you know, Conference, and uh, gradually, I learned more about tea, mm. and uh, later, a company asked me to be the publisher of Tea Magazine, so I created Tea Magazine, kind of relaunched it and rebuilt it as a magazine that was sold at Whole Foods and grocery stores all over the wow. country. And then after that, uh, they asked me to do World Tea News, which was a weekly newsletter from uh, the World Tea Expo people. Uh, And so I began writing weekly about tea in about about 10, 11 years ago. Uh, And then I, in 2014, um, decided to test the concept of a global tea magazine which Mm. we called uh, T-Journey. So we went out on Kickstarter and uh, we got $128,000. That was the third best funded magazine ever launched on Kickstarter. We got uh, folks from 36 different countries to support us. And so that told me that the concept was good, but the, the money there wasn't enough money in it. It didn't generate a significant amount of revenue, so it became uh, you know a part time important part of my life, but it wasn't mm. my sole concern. Uh, after Tea Magazine uh, ceased publication, I uh, became editor of uh, managing editor of Stir uh, Coffee and Tea Magazine. And uh, there I had a legitimate reason for splitting my time between tea and coffee because the magazine was designed to deliver tea trade news and coffee news. So uh, in 2014, uh, we uh, launched a campaign for the uh, Tea Journey and by 2016, we had uh, financed it and uh, produced 150-page issues that we sold on Amazon, and uh, you know uh, we got off to a start. And I'm I'm proud to say that Tea Journey's five years old this June. It'll be uh, five years old. It's really grown, and uh, it's become a uh, you know a reliable source of information about uh, about tea. The second aspect of that, though, is a continuation of World Tea News. So after Uh, the company that owns World T News decided uh, uh, that, you know, they didn't want my contract anymore. I had been writing for them for about 10 years. And uh, during that time, I had been blogging uh, Mm -hmm. on the T-Biz blog. And so what I did was I just turned my attention to uh, writing for uh, the T-Biz blog. And soon after, uh, you know, I could see, Last year, for example, the power of the podcast, I had done my first podcast in 2005 on natural food, and I did it for maybe six months, but it wasn't... uh, Uh, It just wasn't strong enough to, uh, you know, generate advertising revenue. And I was quite busy with the magazine and directories. So uh, we let it slide and, and never regretted it. It was a good experiment, but most podcasts in those days only lasted six months or so. And Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a great podcast. It wasn't (laughs) a bad one. It was, it was a classic format where you just kind of, talk to people about different aspects of the natural food industry. I feel like the kid, the critical thing this time around was to appeal to both trade and to entrepreneur, uh, you know, entrepreneurial uh, businesses in the form mm. of uh, uh, small tea companies. Yeah. And we should also explain tea to enthusiasts. So it has a little of the tea journey, uh, enthusiast audience, as a little of the t biz blog uh, business numbers and business insights we call it Hmm. and then uh, because it's a podcast it also has personality and it has convenience so uh, some 60 70 percent of our listeners are actually listening on a cell phone yeah uh, you know most of those people who are involved in a podcast are people who are uh, busy Uh, you know they they don't mind punching a button and listening to podcast in their car while they're walking around between gardens but um you know they're they're less likely to be hanging out in front of a pc and and uh you know scrolling through the pages like they do with the magazine
1: yeah podcast formatting uh, is definitely very common nowadays especially when everyone's surfing on the web having something to play in the background even if it's like an audiobook it's very convenient um so the and also the t bigs podcast is also something I personally listen to find a lot of really great information about what's going on within the tea industry and so Dan you talked about how you started off with working in uh, organics and then moving to coffee and then transition to tea and tea is also something that's constantly compared with coffee um, so with your ample experience with working in both worlds could you tell <laughs> us a little bit more about
0: you know, I'm too. I'm very I'm very proud of. I travel to Yunnan every year for a few years there, and I would meet uh, coffee farmers. I would spend time with mm-hmm. them. I was uh, attending coffee conferences as well as visiting with the tea people, and uh, I had a an agreement with Pu'er magazine, which is a beautiful, uh, widely distributed and and well respected uh, magazine, uh, uh, specifically on Pu'er. And so uh, at one point, they asked me if I'd write an article about coffee. And I said, sure, I'll write an article. And the coffee article I wrote was called uh, Coffee with Chinese Characteristics. Mm. And I got 1.2 million readers. And wow. uh, the reason is, is because aromatic coffee that's lightly roasted and uh, grown and, and created in a, in a, you know, artisanal way, small batch roasting, that sort of thing has uh, aromatics and a light uh, flavor and uh, you know a a lingering aftertaste and it has many of the qualities that uh, tea broth has Mm -hmm. and uh, when I did the article I just called up a large number of roasters and, and asked retailers what their customers were asking for, and uh, what what they're asking for is the China profile uh, beverages over there. For example, are going to be much more uh, uh, interesting to the population and much more popular if uh, they taste natural as opposed to, you know, sugary, sweet with color and that sort of stuff that's popular in the West. And they're going to be aromatic uh, okay. so people sniff their beverage before they drink it and they they have to have a sense of uh, you know uh, uh, pleasant aroma uh, aromatic compounds uh, which could be coffee or could be tea right. um, w- uh, before they enjoy it and then uh, the other thing is is that they drink in smaller quantities so mm-hmm. they don't they don't have 64 ounce big gulp Kind of solutions over there, and uh, finally, I find that uh, they see uh, modern tea, uh, which and which I can define as things like fusions. Uh, one of the very popular teas over there is a is a uh, a, a black iced tea with uh, grapefruit in it, and uh, huh. little little grapefruit cells are unusual in in uh you know ruby red grapefruit from texas is unusual in right. uh, in china and it's fruity it pops in your mouth and it can be sucked up by a straw and it, it was a big hit when i go to the coming airport every year i'd always stop by the same starbucks and <laughs> i'd ask them if they were selling um you know how's how how are the how are the teas selling and uh, they they always gave a big thumbs up because these were uh western style teas but uh you know they didn't have the artificial flavor or color they weren't heavily sweetened they were uh, more uh they were designed uh, you know with the, again the asian palette in mind mm-hmm. so there's a lesson i teach everyone in tea and the, who manufactures tea and that's that you build your tea for the market for the consumer you you find what the consumer wants for example if they don't want a sugary colorful tea and they like things like the exotic taste of of ruby you know texas ruby red grapefruit then you're going to be a lot more successful so don't make the tea for yourself make the tea for the people who are going to consume it and you know uh, don't worry about uh quality ingredients for example uh, if you only select ingredients because they're cheap you often create a problem for yourself in the market because people are willing to pay for quality as long as the quality is something they can taste they Mm -hmm. can appreciate and so uh, you know uh, when you look at a market uh, like uh, uh, Hong Kong and China and Taiwan you see differences you don't right. see some, you know, there's similarities, but there's very significant differences. And uh, when you go to India, uh, you know, everybody says, yeah, everybody drinks Indian chai. Well, that's not actually true. Everybody drinks chai. There's 200 varieties. Oh. Of chai. So you could literally say, yeah, everybody drinks chai. But, in uh, you know, they like cardamom more in the north. They like pepper more in the south. Right. The Ingredients and the mix and the and the how it's prepared and what kind of milk they use. Do they use a coconut milk? Do they use a cow's milk? All of those different types of things influence, uh, you know, the taste patterns and preferences mm. of the market. And when you uh, take the time to identify that, you sell a lot more tea. Uh, one of my friends runs uh, Wok Bakkery, which is the third largest tea company in 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 India, and. He has 17 different blends of Wagbakri uh, standard black tea, mm. formulated because the water in 17 different regions of India significantly varies in terms of uh, calcium content and you know, heavy minerals and uh, different uh, uh, you know, alkaloids. And so the tea doesn't taste right unless you blend it assuming that the customer is not going to be filtering their water. Because, see, in, in the U.S., uh, if you buy a Keurig machine, it automatically filters the water for you and always mm-hmm. makes it the same. So it doesn't really matter if you're drinking water from Kentucky or, or South Carolina. But in India, when you turn on the faucet or you go down to the river and pour a, a bucket of water into the sink, what you've done is, is you've uh, you know captured the essence of water in that area, and you need right. to adjust your tea to to uh, you know to make that work so uh, there's a real science to it lipton has hundreds of blends of lipton uh, yellow label because of that same uh you know need uh, the the red rose that we drink in canada is different than the red rose that you drink in the united states mm-hmm. and uh it sounds and tastes i mean no it's marketed the same but it sounds and tastes uh quite different from region to region even even the uh method of preparation for example open pans are very popular mm-hmm. in, in places like india whereas kettles and uh, you know refined electric kettles are, are far more common in europe
1: wow there's there's so much going on that is that's that we're not consumers are just not aware of within right. the yeah right
0: And you Uh, don't need to be aware of it if you've got a good manufacturer because they've studied the market and solved these problems for you. It's interesting, though, if you take your tea from your region to a different region and you make the tea there, like in Florida, if you take tea from the north... West, which is pure water and very little bit of, 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 of flavor in it. You take mm-hmm. it to Florida, which is also pure water, but has a great deal of flavor in it. You, you often say, uh, tea tastes different down here. And uh, <laughs> you know, it, you're know, you correct. It tastes different because it's actually your blend. Your yeah. blend is no longer familiar because it's out of, out of its own region.
1: What has made tea such a fascinating industry to report and publish on?
0: Yeah, it's, it's about the people, the, people. Uh, the, the beverages. Uh, of, I ran uh, liquor magazines when I was younger. I was the CEO of a, of a beverage bulletin and Patterson's Beverage Journal. Yeah, it was fascinating. Talked to the distillers and to the people who grew hops and the people who created beer. And I got to tell you, uh, the when I studied coffee, I found fascinating coffee mm. people. And, right. you know, in my travels to Colombia and Brazil and all the rest, I still corresponded with all those people. But tea is vastly bigger. Mm. You know, people don't appreciate how much tea there really is. But it's going to hit 297 billion liters in, wow. uh, you know, three years. So uh, it, it's it's far more, far more than than. Uh, coffee far more than than milk. Uh, it's a beverage that's consumed in every country it's in every yeah. pantry it's in every you know kind of uh, food establishment from fast food to fine dining and um, the people involved in making the tea are uh Are relying on a history that goes back to Neolithic times. People in Neolithic villages cultivated tea, and uh, used it for medicinal purposes. Mm -hmm. So this is this is just after cavemen kind of things, and uh, you know it's been part of us ever since. So when you uh, study tea. You study history completely different than you do with coffee, which has only been around for about 400 years or so, and uh, you know, not 4,000 years. <laughs> the, the, the coffee uh, uh, became popular within the last two, three hundred years. It, it he was uh, popular uh, uh, three thousand years ago. So, yeah. You know, there's a, there's a history and a strategy there uh, to how to make it and process it and what to do with it. That you know, kind of goes far beyond. The other thing about tea that's striking is, is that uh, within the context of third world agriculture, almost everything is about survival. Almost everything is about growing stuff in large enough quantities to feed the kids and to, you know, feed the animals and to, uh, you know, basically create uh you know a standard of living that's comfortable mm-hmm. well you need a cash crop if you're going to put a tin roof on your house if you're going to buy a motorcycle if you're going to send your kids off to school you're, you're going to need to do something more than just subsistence farming and uh coffee is a crop that does that uh, with very little maintenance through most of the year and it's a practical, uh, you know, a money maker uh, most years. Right. Uh, tea is the same. Spices, uh, when you look at the people who grow vanilla and you look at the people who grow uh, uh, cacao, you see, uh, you know, a significant uh, potential upside. Mm-hmm. But, uh, interesting this the availability meaning that the fact that virtually everybody in these countries can grow let's say tea or or in most countries they can grow coffee the very availability of the product means that there's an awful lot of people who are uh viewing the product as subsistence uh, as opposed to committing to making it excellence and creating uh you know Mm -hmm. real value so their view of of tea or coffee is actually i don't drink coffee you know i've been in many places where they say i grow it but i don't drink it and uh you know i don't i don't have the machinery to roast it i don't know how to turn it into coffee all I do is just, uh, you know, pick it at the right time, process it, and hand it off to people. Yeah. So there was there was an interesting study done. They bought very small roastery, little tiny roasters, and they gave it to farmers all throughout Brazil and through Colombia. And they said, "Here's a roaster. Here's how to use it. It's it produces a high quality. Uh, it, it's what they call a sampling roaster. It's it it's." A way to take a small sample and then calibrate the real big machine that Mm -hmm. does hundreds of thousands of pounds and it produces a good quality coffee so they gave them these machines and sure enough when the farmer could taste the difference could actually you know say oh this this coffee's better than that coffee or this processing method is more pleasant than this processing method Mm. suddenly the farmer wanted to improve his crop and to wow. you know make the processing a little more clean and uh, considered organic certifications and all that stuff. And there a uh, price uh, went up significantly. There's wow. a, a competition called a cup of excellence where they go into a country and judges from all over the world taste the coffee that uh, was made that year by small growers. Yeah. And, uh, it's a wonderful part I've participated in it several times the judges uh, only look at the tea and coffee I mean only look at the coffee that's been produced in the you know in that year and in small quantities and they judge it and when they're finished judging it uh they post the scores and then uh the coffee is auctioned off to buyers all over the world mm-hmm. and uh the coffee goes for 150 times the price of the local market. So if that same farmer had brought his coffee down to the local market, he would have gotten, uh, you know, a few pennies on the pound, right? Yeah. But if if he uh, sells it to some Japanese, uh, high-end Japanese house in uh, Tokyo, he could get uh, hundreds of dollars per a kilo and produce you know 200 kilos for sale yeah. so uh, i interviewed one of these guys one time and i said uh, hey you just won the the top prize in uh, all of brazil which is the largest coffee producing country in the world yeah and uh you're in an unusual region you're in bahia up in the far north and uh i said uh tell me uh how is it that you won? And he said, uh, you know, uh, I've been growing uh, coffee for a long time. My parents have grown coffee. I married the girl next door whose parents grew coffee. We put the two farms together, but it wasn't, it wasn't until our son Hmm. uh, told us we should be making artisanal coffee and you know, producing it in a different way and processing it in a different way that we realized that what we had was the ability to generate enough revenue to improve our lives and to make things uh, better. So he said, there's five families who have been involved in in the growing and and processing of this coffee for many generations, and I'm going to buy each of them a pickup truck. And I said, uh, uh, "Why a pickup truck?" And he says, "So that they couldn't borrow in mine because they don't have one." So uh, it, it was interesting to see what would happen. What he meant there, of course, was that he was going to invest in the machinery and, the, you know, the the ability to produce better coffee each year. And then there's a virtuous cycle right because he's already now now he has a reputation as one of the best coffee makers in the world not just right. in Brazil. and so people will say to him hey you know uh here's an extra three four five ten dollars a pound for your coffee because uh you know you've achieved the success rate that uh, uh, the success that most people hope for, so right. uh, th- that's a special uh, type of, uh, of uh, you know, gift, if you will, uh, that those tasters uh, provides. A nonprofit organization, they give eighty percent of the money to the farmer. They keep twenty percent to package everything, food safe, mm-hmm. and do the laboratory work on it and send it off to the different uh, buyers, you know, in uh, vacuum packaging and stuff like that. Because no farmer can go out and buy. Vacuum packaging line and all those things. Right. It, it, it's a wonderful source of uh, of income because they're rewarding the farmer for just producing a great crop. Mm-hmm. And uh, we see that in tea. Uh, when you, when you are in Darjeeling in one of the eighty-seven gardens up there, and you produce a traditional Darjeeling tea, there's a price for it. It's a it's a good fee. There's nothing uh, you know uh, negative about it. Right. but a few years ago some of the guys up there uh started uh a lot of people who drink darsling tea go oh well this is an oolong and they'll go no no it's a darsling and y- you know it was it was from uh it was made originally by people who were oolong makers who mm-hmm. had been sort of captured in uh china and brought to india and uh no wonder it has a new long kind of flavor. It grows at high altitude, slow, it grows on China bush. It's, yes. It, it's very similar to that. So these fellows decided that they would actually make oolong and uh, they would call it oolong. And the, uh, the they got, they put it in the competitions and everything and it just wasn't there. And then they did it again the next year and it just wasn't there. And then they did it again the next year and it just wasn't there, but it was getting better they were getting smarter everybody was was acknowledging that this was a new way of making darsling taste uh you know good right so so we talked to rishi Sari uh, uh, the other day who's uh, uh, one of the growers who who made oolongs up there and one of the first growers who created green uh, teas in darsling and wow. he said you know what eventually it all went away the retailers uh said, you know, oolong from darsling, uh, all the competitions uh, rewarded the tea uh, for, for uh, high quality taste, and they got a good price for it. And and they were able to demonstrate that, you know, what you might call commodity darsling had... Mm-hmm. Uh, an upside, you could could take a, uh, something that was called quality and had a good price and enhance it mm-hmm. by, uh, you know, changing the processing methods and or uh, changing, uh, you know, the marketing associated with it. Um, you theoretically you could have run a, a marketing campaign and said darsling isn't is an Oolong tea won't you enjoy it but people wouldn't have recognized the oolong uh, characteristics right that they do in the tea now so oolong as you know is one of the most expensive teas you you can buy mm-hmm. so now these guys are going hey this is great man we've got maybe 10% of our farm that we've dedicated to uh, producing uh, woolongs. And they're competitive level woolongs that are good teas and we're making a good money on them. And so we now are also gonna be known as uh, you know, Darjeeling green tea producers or darsling right. white tea producers or Darstling, you know, woolong producers. And that's new, that wasn't in, in, in 1960, 1970, 1980, 1990 that that wasn't even uh, on the radar right and it wasn't until the last 10 years or so that people have actually said maybe the thing we should be doing is enhancing the terar mm. by modernizing the equipment by more carefully plucking the tea by uh, you know using uh, Chinese rollers and uh, sophisticated, right. Uh, drying equipment and, uh, you know, chemical uh, analysis of the soil so that all the micronutrients are in place and, you know, uh, better irrigation. And uh, d- d- the end result here is is that they have a better tea. And a point that I I'm, uh, uh, frequently make is, is that uh, there's an oversupply and a demand that is going to continue. But it's Mm -hmm. invariably going to be a disadvantage to growers who see themselves as producers of commodity tea. If -hmm. if you're solely involved in commodity tea, you're, you're going to lose the game because uh, the price just keeps going down and down and the costs keep going up and up. And if you choose to view tea as uh, a commodity product that we bring to the, uh, you know, Uh, auction that pays the bills but we also have uh, 10 hectares or 20 hectares or or, uh, even 30 hectares of land Hmm. which is ideally suited for a higher quality you know white tea or oolong tea if if you see that and maximize its potential then what you're going to find is is that your business is far more sustainable. You know, the the commodity, high-quality black tea, commodity broken leaf, uh, you know, BPOE, that tea is going to be enough to sustain your big operation and employ 500 workers. But in the same way that a smallholder gets to put a tin roof on his house because he's you know, chosen to pluck the tea better and make uh, more careful choices about growing and tending the plant, uh, the big plantation can do the same thing. They can buy new factory equipment and spend a lot more money on uh, Mm -hmm. processing and marketing if they simply commit a small, uh, maybe 10, 20% of their total uh, acreage. Uh, It wouldn't work if they tried to commit to 80% because it's too labor intensive and there isn't a market for it. But if you were to say, okay, well, we have a brand. Uh, one of my favorite stories is 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 one that we told this uh, week. Uh, Raj Barro out in uh, Assam is fourth generation uh, Adiobari, uh, te- uh estate. That's about 645 acre estate. And uh, they produce 700 million kilos. And they... Uh, sell their tea is rujani r-u-j-a-n-i tea Mm -hmm. and it's a very successful venture for him he's he's able to uh you know be a family-owned business and employ quite a few people and do a good job out there uh because he sees how you know a percentage of his tea should be an orthodox production and it's it's not determined arbitrarily it's determined because it's the right cultivars on the right hills with the right water availability and the right physical caring. Usually it boils down to a couple of people who train the pluckers and who watch the tea, just like they do in China from the moment it's plucked, uh, the, you know, yeah. they decide when it's going to be plucked. And then they, they create the opportunity for uh, big revenue later because they've, they've taken an ordinary thing and make it quite extraordinary.
1: Mm. Wow. So it seems like taking the, um, uh, the more quality focused route and also the artisanal route is, is certainly beneficial even for tea farmers.
0: Yep. Yep. But you can't employ a thousand people doing it. There's not enough money coming in. There's a volume yeah. isn't there. So, uh, you know, the, the smart guy has a mix of the two. And if you're a small guy, Basically, what you want to do is focus entirely on the quality of the leaf. Right. Just bring bring good leaf to a factory. Don't worry about making it into tea, and then uh, the factory will pay you a reasonable sum of money. Uh, the government mandates a minimum now, and the little entrepreneurial farmer can uh, you know make sure he waters his plants and keeps them mm-hmm. well tended, and uh, and and make money doing that. Um, I think there's a, a role for rural entrepreneurs that's underappreciated in virtually every uh, sector, whether it's uh, cacao or corn or anything. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, in the dawning of this new age as as uh, the population increases, food becomes more expensive yeah. and, uh, you know, land becomes more scarce. Those people who actually know how to use their land to the best advantage are the ones who are going to be uh you know Mm -hmm. sustainable and profitable
1: right right there's a lot of conversation just now about like the tea industry as a whole how about your personal tea experience and more how of how tea has played an impact a role in your life so for yourself what do you see the value of tea has and or in other words what got you interested in tea culture
0: yeah, it's a—it's more than a beverage. Uh, we use that yeah. phrase frequently. It's—it's—it's it's, it's quite interesting uh, to, in a given week, I might have conversations with people on four different continents, mm. and uh, but it's quite interesting to find all four—you know, whether they're in Japan or in Europe or in Africa—all um, of those individuals citing essentially a love of the leaf. they uh, It isn't just something they drink. It's mm-hmm. something that they really care about. And uh, when you start looking for connections, uh, one of my favorite stories was written by a reporter of ours in Japan. And he interviewed somebody and he said, uh, you know, Dan asked me to ask you about the incursion, the new enthusiasm in France and in Europe for Japan tea and how Japanese yeah. uh, tea is really uh, becoming quite popular there and the answer was well we wanted to work on it for 800 years or so until we understood it fully and got it down before we really began pushing it to the rest of the world and now we feel like uh, we know enough about tea where we can share it and you know the idea that you would study something and work with something and really master it over seven or 800 years is kind of a alien concept to a lot of westerners but uh Mm. it's actually a very appropriate explanation of why tea is doing so well right now Mm. because it's authentic yeah tea has right at its core this sense that people pick it that people with intelligent minds manipulate it and create different uh flavors and different processes and then they share it with people who don't just, you know, belt it down and walk away. They they share it with people who drink it and go, you know, this is a this is an unusual white tea. This has a certain quality that I'm not familiar with. I wonder what what that um, what made that so. And so they ask a question, and then they ask another question, and they ask another. About ten years ago, I wrote an essay called uh, "Conscious." Uh, tea. Conscious tea. And I had uh, observed people in restaurants for years. I uh, used to work in restaurants, manage them when I was real young. And uh, people would say, bring me some tea. And they wouldn't say, you know, mm-hmm. black tea from India or, uh, you know, uh, bring me a, a, a delicate jasmine from southern China. They just said, bring me some tea. Because right. they were, uh, they were unconscious. They weren't mm-hmm. uh, conscious of where it came from. They weren't conscious that there were different varieties. Didn't, they weren't particularly interested in the fact that it was processed in this way or that way or whatever. And uh, a lot of that is because the tea was being treated as a commodity, and it was all very similar. Uh, so Tadley, Twinings, uh, Lipton, those teas vary, but not to someone who's drinking it in a nice, uh, you know, in a big tall ice glass and pouring syrup in it or coloring it with, uh, you know, uh, flavors. Right. So uh, what happened is, is that people suddenly became conscious. The, uh, the example I like to cite is, is the company that researches menus. For 100 years, menus said tea. And then about 40 years ago, 35 years ago, certain menus said green tea and black tea and uh, you know they would say uh things like earl grey english breakfast uh, those were kind of standard labels and do you right. know now that, uh, that that the majority of menus in the united states have a differentiated menu for tea
1: i i'm not aware of that
0: so they would say things like we offer rooibos we offer black tea we offer green tea and um, a small percentage of menus are now actually writing a source. We'll, so they'll it. say it isn't just green tea. They'll say this is a, uh, a, a Chinese green tea from Kyoto, or this is a Chinese uh, green tea from, uh, you know, yeah. So uh, we're now seeing uh, a person who orders that tea is a conscious tea drinker who's discerning enough to prefer Mm. a sentia to a uh, dragon well and they aren't content to just say, bring me a green tea. Um, They wanna be able to say uh, to the waiter and the waiter needs to understand Mm. how to prepare it and how to properly serve it. Uh, They need to say, would you bring me a, you know, a a dragon well. Yeah. when that happens, what happens also is, is the tea becomes premium. So uh, the fact that it is now, you're now conscious of it and you're aware of where it comes from and what style it is, is exactly the thing that makes you, gives you permission to, uh, you know, to open your wallet and pay another uh, dollar a cup or 65 cents a cup or whatever more. A tea that has premium qualities can be marketed at significantly greater sums of money Mm -hmm. than a tea that is commodity and is built on, uh, you know, sameness. Uh, My friend friend Nigel Millican in in England says, you know, the price of a serving of squash averages nine cents in England, (laughs) whereas a serving of tea is only three cents. And uh-huh. uh, and I thought, yeah, you know, people people are willing to pay more for squash on their table, on their plate than they are for tea because, uh, you know, they don't know there's nothing to, to make the uh, there's nothing to make the tea differentiated and valuable to them. So as soon as you do that uh, and create value then I think you can legitimately charge more for it. And uh, that money actually uh, more and more is finding its way back to uh, origin because uh, companies like Vatom Tea, for example, have shortened the supply chain, freshened the tea, Mm -hmm. reduced the amount of money that's being spent in the middle of the chain and kept it in origin. So it's what they call value addition. So India is negotiating with Poland right now to allow Indian tea companies To be able to put the tea in tea bags, the tea bags in boxes, the boxes in cellophane, the cellophane in cases, the cases in containers and the entire container to go to um, Poland. Mm -hmm. And instead of being opened up and sampled and, uh, you know, treated as bulk, it then gets shipped immediately to a warehouse and is cartoned off to uh, To grocery stores you know to 500 grocery stores well that means that the price of packaging and and containerization all the rest of that kind of stuff is uh remains in india you know whereas if all indians did was just put a bunch of sacks on a truck and it went to uh you know got stacked into a container and brought to uh poland it would be the polish guys who who did the blending and the packaging mm-hmm. and putting it in the tea bags and putting the cellophane around it and, you know, putting it in boxes and sending it to the, uh, to the grocers. It would have been those guys who, who made the money. So, mm-hmm. uh, once you agree on, uh, standards and laboratory testing, food safety regulations, once you make it possible for people in Poland to trust that the Indians were no less quality, uh, you know, uh, packers and uh, India, they call them packeteers, no less quality packeteers than than the Polish, then there's a terrific savings there because uh, you're not uh, shipping a product that has to sit around and get managed and handled and all the rest. You're shipping a product that just has to be put on the shelves and sold. Mm -hmm. And uh, the sooner that happens, the sooner you got your money and and off it goes. It's very common for tea that's harvested right now in uh, what we call second flush tea. It's very common for second flush tea to not be sold till November, maybe Mm. December. Oh my God. So wouldn't it be better for second flush tea picked in May and processed in May to be consumed or available for consumption in, uh, you know, places like uh, grocery stores in the West. I was so pleased this last week. There's a young woman I know, uh, Tracy Bell up in uh, Newfoundland, and uh, she washes and flash freezes the tea in pouches just like oh. uh, frozen fruit and just like frozen spinach. Right. Right. Well, sobees and Safeway grocery chains, 433 stores have now decided to sell frozen tea in their stores in the, you know, in the freezer compartment. Oh, wow. And that means you could take that sack of tea and, uh, use it as a culinary ingredient in uh you know baking like Mm -hmm, uh -hmm. you can you could uh, grind it up and put it in smoothies uh you can uh take the tea and uh put hot water on it and and drink it and that's uh, crazy and it's fresh meaning that the leaves are bright green and they're still uh you know They look like they were when they plucked. Nobody dried it and turned it into the more common uh, dry shape. So I sent her a note of congratulations, told her I wanted to put her on the podcast next week. And, uh, you know, I've watched her for several years now take that tea. And, you know, she had 10 stores last summer and then she got it Mm -hmm. into 30 stores. And it was so successful in the 30 stores that the chain decided to go ahead and roll it out nationally in Canada, some places in the United States. Wow. So that's, that's genuine innovation. And yes. if you've been to the tea lands, it's very common for people to just take the tea and, you know, put it in a cup, uh, mm-hmm. as, soon, as soon as it's, uh, been, uh, you know, w- weathered and, and uh, and it a little bit as soon as it has flavor right. um then uh w- when you put it in the cup it it, it brews up nicely it tastes fresh yeah, you know fresh it just tastes like it was made uh you know from leaves that were only a day old instead of six or eight or ten months old
1: yeah yeah that wow, that's um there's a lot of information on tea it, that is just, I am, have not been exposed to, to uh, exposed to and have become aware of at all. But I, like, next step is definitely to to visit, you know, where tea is grown, to visit the farmers of tea. And to get really the interaction of people who have, you know, really involved their life in tea.
0: Well, you know, you can go to Mississippi and do that now. There's tea growers right. in Mississippi and in uh, the Carolinas and in uh, the far west. Uh, and soon there'll be tea growers pretty much everywhere. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to hear how people who are involved with tea uh, find uh, the American experiment interesting because uh, the Americans uh, can't afford labor, so it's all automated. They don't wanna go out through there and put uh, minerals down by um, you know, uh, machines. So they, they do what they call fertigation. They, they mix it up and put it in the water and it's spread on the plants. And in uh, India, when there's a, a plant that's sick The only way you know that the plant is sick is to have uh, people walk through the field every single day. Mm -hmm. But uh, the Americans fly a drone over the top of it with a uh, a camera that detects changes in color. And as soon as the leaves start turning yellow or wilting, the drone immediately identifies where that plant is. And then in, in places in China, they send a second drone out at exactly that uh, latitude, latitude, longitude, and that second drone hovers over the top of the plant, and sprays a uh, pesticide on just that one plant or the three plants that are next to it. Wow. So uh, you know, isn't that a, a cool way of seeing things? So that is, uh, you know, there's uh, there's ways by which uh, modern technology and techniques can be used to create. Uh, efficiencies Mm -hmm. and you know in some cases uh, significant revenue enhancers like for example uh, they use cargo drones a lot of tea is grown off of the side of rocks in China it's it's uh, so steep it's just very difficult to walk out there pick the tea and Mm. uh, you know uh not spend half a day getting 10 pounds of tea so Mm -hmm. uh, what they do is they they send the folks out there uh, to pick the tea they put it in sacks the sacks are carried down the mountain by uh, cargo drones and dropped at a single processing facility and they're only minutes it only took minutes for the tea to go from point a to point b instead of hours you know while they drove a truck through a narrow road and tried to get it down the mountain so uh i think it's going to argue uh for you know uh the greater expense for the tea is going to be invested in things like cargo drones uh, which will result in freshness which will then create more of a demand for a fresh high quality tea and will end up with you know a better virtuous cycle there
1: yeah it it definitely seems like right now people even just from the industry a lot of uh producers and buyers are focused on purchasing and producing quality tea quality leaves and which leads it's a
0: small percentage though because for example if you look at north america north america drinks 2.3 percent of all the world's tea Oh, so that means nothing. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Two percent it, is not very much of the tea. No. And of the two percent, almost all of that two percent is uh, is ch- as cheaply as they can produce it in tea bags that cost three cents or five cents a piece.
1: Correct. So,
0: what we need to do here is, is we need to create a role for marketing uh, that, mm. uh, you know, creates a desire on the part of people to enjoy a finer quality tea. So uh, heirloom tomato, you couldn't sell an heirloom tomato 30 years ago because uh, it didn't look right. It didn't look commercial enough. It had flaws on it or whatever, you know, now you can sell an heirloom tomato for more than you could sell uh, a conventional flawless looking tomato because uh, it's got great flavor and and it cooks well. And, uh, you know, it makes good, uh, makes good tomato soup and stuff, so uh, we're seeing that with tea. We're we're seeing people say, you know what, uh, this tea tastes really good, and mm. you know it's a matcha, for example. And I'm right. going to put it in, in my shortbread, and I'm going to have this amazing matcha shortbread, which is good for me and also tastes good. Or yeah. I'm going to I'm going to mix it in a smoothie, or you know I'm going to create a new dish uh, called. Uh, you know, stewed uh, stewed tea, poached fish. There's all these different things uh, that you can do with tea that really works best when the tea is good. Mm-hmm. You know, when the tea's when you start off with a good ingredient, you're more likely to end up with a good dish. So uh, that in that way, uh, the tea becomes um, popular uh, because of its its ability to do uh culinary uh you know culinary benefits uh, its ability to create um you know superior beverages a lot of mixologists are using tea now in the bar they're making oolongs and green teas and they're making a better drink uh, because they're starting with a you know a better tea up here we drink hot toddies and when i'm in the bar in the middle of the winter it's 34 degrees below zero i'll say to him uh, how do you make your hot toddies and he'll say well we use hot water and i'll say would you do me a favor and just make it out of tea uh in other words make make the hot water uh, brew brew some tea in the hot water before you make the hot toddy and uh they'll do that for me you know for an extra buck or whatever and uh i'll say now uh, sip one on the side here and i'll tell you what it'll taste better and they're like wow you know a good tea really makes a hot toddy taste a whole lot better it's, yeah it's better than just better than just hot water and i said yeah and you know what it's just pennies it's 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 not going to cost you much but your bar is going to get a reputation for having better taste than toddies yeah because you you know took some loose leaf tea and made it in, made it in uh you know uh, made a pot of it early in the day and made 10 toddies out of it or whatever so uh, that's how it works. You explain to people mm-hmm. and then you let them taste it and say, wow, you know, this tastes different. When I started Tea Journey, the uh, Tea Journey describes the first step when an individual moves from unconscious tea drinking to conscious tea drinking. Mm-hmm. It's that first sip where they say, man, I never knew tea could taste like that. That's yeah. good that's good and then typically the person does not uh, i mean they'll still drink bad tea if that's all they got but they they don't go out of their way uh, to uh drink bad tea they'll turn it down or they'll uh you know when they can they'll they'll ask and see if the, the restaurant or whatever has better tasting tea uh when i go into chinese restaurants a lot of times the tea is a green tea very inexpensive uh, you know mm. two cent three cent cheap tea bag from china and it's stale and you know i'll say to the owner um hey do you drink tea and they'll go yeah and i said do you drink your tea and they'll go oh no you know i never drink <laughs> my tea and i said well what kind of tea do you drink and they'll usually say well i drink a Wulong or i drink a, you know a whatever right uh, and i'll say um uh, bring one of those out for me because i can tell the difference and i really appreciate tea and i enjoy it with my chinese meal and if you've got a oolong back there um you know it'll be great yeah so uh i don't get to go to the chinese restaurant more it's called the lucky koi i don't get to go there but they're Father who runs the restaurant uh, knows Wuwushan, so I, when he brings uh, brings food up, I give him a tip of, uh, you know, uh, fifteen dollar packets of uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wuwushan, you know, rock tea, uncha. and yeah. uh, and they're like, oh man, that's like the best tip I ever got, you know, that's, that's better than <laughs> that's better than money. that's
1: amazing
0: that's uh, that when you do that when you when you can tip somebody in tea and they'll say wow that was a lot better than money thanks for that uh then you've achieved a level of uh you know recognition for the qualities and benefits of tea that Mm. you know is is typical in other parts of the world but not necessarily here so uh this is a long process It, it actually took you know i remember when the first coffee Uh, when the first good coffee was being served by uh, Alfred Pete, I used to live in San Francisco. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, Alfred Pete and all those guys were like outposts. they were just small shops over in uh, Emeryville. And uh, suddenly uh, there was a long line and then there were two shops and then things got a little bit better. Starbucks uh, hired them to make all of their coffee at the Mm. beginning because Starbucks didn't know how to make good coffee. And uh, eventually, uh, you know, Starbucks and Peach became competitors. Um, What uh, made that possible was the fact that uh, thousands upon thousands of people tasted, you know, Folgers and Starbucks and said, oh, man, I, I really like Starbucks. (laughs) <laughs> right. this, is lot, this is a lot better than the Folgers, or or Maxwell House, or whatever it happened to be. So they were still coffee drinkers. Uh, they were uh, coffee drinkers from oftentimes when they were quite young, when they went to college, is when they started drinking coffee. But they hadn't converted into specialty coffee drinkers until they had actually tasted espresso, you know, and tasted a quality production, uh, you know, right. products that you could get in a, in an independent uh, coffee shop uh, those were my favorite sources. When I, when I was running a big coffee magazine, hundreds and hundreds of, uh, top flight retailers were making good money in the, in the nineties, you know, before the big recession. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the magazine was making several million dollars a year and it was really, uh, uh producing, uh, lots wow. of articles. We had big staff and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, that all changed with the recession and with the fact that there was a contraction in the number of stores. I uh, mentioned this to a fellow the other day. That 66% of all of the locations, all of the coffee shop locations in the United States are owned by either Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks. Mm. It used to be 6%, you know, and you know the independents and the small chains were dominant the local cafes were dominant. And then that whole market changed because of convenience. You could just drive up to a store and get your coffee and because of quality. So what'll happen in tea, exactly the same thing. When tea becomes readily available, like you see in RTD and, uh, you know, is more available in different uh, restaurants and locations and the tea is, uh, you know, better tasting and yeah likely to convert someone from commodity to high quality then you're going to see tea uh you know sort of get up and go again uh globally it's working out fine uh for the last for the 10 years ending 2016 uh tea was growing at about 4.5 five percent per year and Mm -hmm. for uh the next five years it's going to grow at eight percent an estimated eight percent per year but uh the growth is not occurring in western countries where beverages are fiercely competitive the growth is occurring in uh developing countries that also produce tea so Mm -hmm. uh a country like uh, combined countries like china and india drink you know, if the U.S. drinks two percent, three, two point three percent of the tea, uh, countries like India and, and China combined drink like forty percent of the tea. You know, they drink far more. And okay. you know, when you add in uh, Vietnam and Japan and uh, you know Korea and mm-hmm. what, you, what you find is is that it's a, uh, what you would call a tea culture. A dominant, the dominant beverage, the hot, dominant hot beverage in those cultures is uh, you know tea, tea. and yeah. with the young the dominant cold beverage is tea, the, the uh, this, tea. yeah this milk tea uh, all of those uh, all of those uh, new uh, chilled and you know uh, sweet and uh, mm. uh, fun types of tea cream teas uh, cheese, cheese tea. teas yeah and all those are, are uh, now making major inroads in the cold side of it. So you have, uh, you know, boba was originally a hot tea. Did you know that?
1: No, I didn't know that it was originally. It, it, was,
0: it was done with small tapioca pearls, very small tapioca pearls. Right. The classic milk, uh, you know, the sweet milk and a rich black tea in uh, Taiwan. And it was uh, it wasn't long before uh, people because that's a hot climate and humid. Mm-hmm. It wasn't long before people took that tea and poured it over ice and began uh, consuming it that way. But uh, it's interesting that uh, that we now have, uh, for example, in the U.S., uh, ready-to-drink tea is a far bigger market, ten billion dollar market, uh, mm-hmm. than uh, you know packaged tea, which is uh, you know about a three billion dollar market. So uh, you see a lot more people uh, taking tea in uh, its iced form uh, globally now. That used to be almost exclusively the U.S. Here in Canada, there's a lot more iced tea being consumed. Right. But uh, by and large, tea is a hot ding.
1: Maybe one last question of um, how you define the art of tea.
0: Yeah, I think it's an appreciation of the people and the process. Mm-hmm. So it it's stimul I've had twelve hundred dollar tea. It's stimulating on the palate. The organoleptic qualities of tea are very important. But I think that uh you could say that of wine. Right. Uh, you could say that of fine scotch. Uh when I drink fine scotch I savor it and, you know, I have I look for the aftertaste and I uh look for different notes and, but I rarely say, where was the ingredient, you know, where were the ingredients grown and uh, how mm. were they processed? And was this uh, a small still or a big still? Um, you know, one of the things that happens with uh, products like that that are brands, big brands, is is that they have to bring the ingredients from somewhere else in order to make the product. I mean, if you think Mm -hmm. about a beer distributor like Stella Artois, they couldn't grow enough uh, hops in their immediate neighborhood to even begin to cover the volume of, uh, you know, beer that they supply globally. So they have 15 different breweries in 15 different locations and they source all the product differently. Mm. And, you know, they try to make it taste the same. There's no question it's still the same, you know, ingredients in terms of, uh, you know, the quantity of this and the yeast that they use and stuff like that. But the point I'm making that differs from tea is, is that tea is quite unique that uh, from season to season it's, it's like this little silver needle this is a good season but yeah it's not uh it's not so much better or so much worse than any other season you know it's it's like i drink tea seasonally for example i drink the autumn teas in the fall for some reason because just seemed right to me and you know puerhs in the fall and yeah. uh, you know end of the year kind of stuff when it's getting cold whereas i love the angie patras and uh, you know this little silver needle i love all of these teas in the spring because they make me feel springy <laughs> yeah it
1: does it does um we do often associate our mood and environment with what kind of tea we want
0: but they do that consciously when you drink consciously tea, for tastes, sure it tastes Green, you know, it tastes springy, it tastes right. You know, uh, that's that's one thing about the first flush. If you are a big fan of stuff that tastes new and you know, Mm. uh, uh, new from the fields and such, sentient new sentient tastes good. You know, it's different, slightly different characteristics than six months from now or whatever. And when you drink the teas, if you appreciate that then you're actually appreciating the fact that these guys are, uh, in the fields early, you know, they're, they're, they put their best game on when it comes to first flush teas, uh, because they know they've got the best material to work with. It's, it's easier to make a great tea now than it is during monsoon season. Mm. There's too much water, it's hard to get the workers out into the field uh, right. the processing plants highly humid and you know drying isn't as efficient and it's just all these things that happen later in the year that are just a fact of life if you live in a monsoon country mm-hmm. uh which is sort of a definition of tea because tea grows in monsoon countries uh so you end up saying to yourself, you know what? This is now spring. I'm going to do this. And this is now summer. I'm going to do this. All summer long, you see me drinking uh, black teas with pounds of ice. I do what I call, yeah. uh, you know, uh, f- flash frozen.
1: Flash. Do you uh, do cold brewed? Do you like steep it with the hot water and then st- and then pour it over ice? Or do you that's just right. start? I make it. Okay
0: double strength the Som mozambique i've been drinking this last week mm. uh double strength broken uh leaf uh you know pico really good quality tea i i don't right. it, it isn't cheap ctc it's good broken leaf and i brew it hot yeah, so i extract every little thing i could possibly uh drink you know get out of it yeah. and then what i do is is i fill this uh yeti with a uh-huh. uh, packet full of ice uh, to the top and then i pour uh, boiling water because it doesn't matter with the yeti it's not going to break yeah. and uh, that tea for the next 15 minutes tastes better uh you know it's flash mm. uh flash you know flash chilled uh, what we'll call fresh brewed flash chilled yeah, I was in a Seattle restaurant one time and they brought me a cup of tea. I asked for some iced tea and I said, um, this is a Salon tea, isn't it? This is a Sri Lankan? And they go, well, yeah. And I said, you did a really nice job of making this tea. It, mm-hmm. it tastes like it was uh, fresh brewed and flash chilled. She said, that's exactly what we've started doing. <laughs> we, we, uh, we make a double batch in our big bun machine, uh, you know, uh, quarts at a time. And then instead of the reservoir off to the side, we fill the reservoir with ice. We pack it full of ice and we pour the hot tea down into the reservoir. It goes down to the bottom. And then we tap it into a cup full of ice for people to drink. And I said, bring me That's another amazing.
1: one. So yeah. I had like
0: four of those in a row. And the a person who was with me goes, do you usually drink four cups of tea? And I said, you know, this is really uh, what it should taste like. And so, right. yeah, I'm just enjoying it because I'm enjoying it. Uh, when I was uh, young, I grew up in Kansas. I cut wheat and, you know, worked in the farm fields and stuff. And, you know, one of the things that we did was we drank beer, uh, but you couldn't drink too much beer. You couldn't drive the equipment, yeah. and uh, and tea. So uh, during the day, we just drink copious amounts of tea, quarts of tea. Mm. And uh, you know, uh, towards the evening, uh, when we knew we were going to go to the bars and everything, we kind of switch over to beer. So. There's a tea uh, shop called Tea To Go, uh, H2O, uh, Tea To Go. uh, And down in Texas, it's been adding franchises left and right. And uh, they're making good money because it's a drive-through tea shop that sells sells concentrates and sells iced tea by the gallon. By the gallon. Yeah, see, everybody's at home now, right? So yeah. if you if you're out for groceries and you want to something that's better for your kids than Coca-Cola, you just drive through this place and then they've got various flavored teas and you know, lots of different styles. So uh, they're uh, expanding and growing and they're going to survive this uh, crisis because uh convenience is a very powerful you know we didn't talk too much about it today but right. availability convenience flavor all are the critical elements for creating uh, larger cons- you know greater consumption right. i don't have any illusions the united states is never going to drink 5% or even you know never drink 10% of the world's tea mm. but uh if the tea that they drink is substantially better it works fine for the rest of the world markets because the Americans and the Western Europeans are far more willing to pay, um, you know, a high price than, let's say, the people in uh, Korea or uh, Vietnam or, true, you know, certainly in Africa and places like that. Uh, I publish the Chinese prices every single uh, week uh, for ten different styles of Chinese tea. And it varies from about uh, sixty dollars a kilo to about two thousand dollars a kilo. Mm-hmm. And uh, when the Indians look at something that says two thousand dollars a kilo, that's like two hundred thousand rupees. They, you know, they make they make uh, ten rupees a day. So can you imagine? Wow.
1: Two hundred
0: thousand rupees on a kilo of tea. Yeah. And, and yet the Chinese don't think twice about it because it's, it's high quality tea that they can steep multiple times. It meets their uh, expectations in terms of high quality. And mm. it's also uh, uh, normal uh, for them. You know, if it, in the United States, if you say you spend $5 for tea, no one would ever think twice about it. Cause that's what Lipton costs five, $6 up for a hundred bags yeah if you say i spend ten dollars for tea, people say oh that's that's kind of one of those fancy sachet teas you know one of those pyramids uh but when you say uh yeah you know I, I dropped 700 bucks the other day on a kilo of tea their eyes will just pop out of their heads they'll be like yeah i can't believe it you you spent seven hundred dollars for a kilo of tea I, well Kilo teas, 500 uh, cups, and uh, it's $700. So, why don't you look at it this way? I'm spending a buck and a quarter a cup. Oh, oh, well, if you're spending a buck and a quarter a cup, that's not too much. Yeah. So, uh, it's, it's perspective. They don't uh, have a perspective on how that teas, uh, you know, apportioned.
1: Exactly. It's been incredible talking to you, Dan. Thank you so much for just sharing a lot of your experience and information. And I'm sure this could go on for for
0: hours. (laughs) Well, you know what I'll do is is I'll invite myself on the program again, but um, we'll talk very specifically about one narrow segment uh, uh, of the industry. And that's a good use uh, of my skills The uh, New York Tea Society has me on every year and we do a very uh, simple direct uh, session. Uh, The government in in Argentina has invited me to do a presentation for International Tea Day. It'll be in Spanish. Uh, So I'm gonna do the presentation and then they'll translate it for me. And um, what that that presentation is about is uh, uh, the opportunity in tea for companies that are uh, almost exclusively focused on, um, you know, black tea production for iced, right. iced tea consumption. So uh, I want to, I want to open their eyes to that uh, twenty or thirty hectares that they could use to grow artisan tea down in uh, down in Argentina. Wow. Uh, so there's uh, lots of, uh, you know, places where you can kind of drill down and dial in. Um, I also know markets, so someone will say, what's going on in Iran, and I can say that, you know, they got rid of their guest worker program there because of COVID, and now everybody in the country is picking tea as a way of being employed, and the government is uh, benefiting enormously because a local, uh, you know, workforce that knows how to learn, you knows how to pluck tea and make tea. Right. Uh, strengthens the uh, ability of the government to, you know, generate revenue and meet its own domestic demand. So uh, I have reporters in Moscow and different places, uh, you know, to kind of inform me and bring us up to speed on that stuff.
1: Wow, uh, that's awesome.
0: So those are fun things to talk about too.
1: Yeah, we we will definitely have you on back again for a more specific segment topic
0: <laughs> that'll be great yeah. so here's to you and t and thanks for the birthday wishes and uh, my I best do. to everyone in the uh, in the listening audience i will encourage you to uh, check out my podcast which is mm. uh, T biz uh, podcast uh, if you're a business and uh, if you're a tea enthusiast i encourage you to subscribe to t journey magazine
1: yeah, and I'll include all the links in the episode information of this podcast.
0: That'll be great. All right. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I'm certain we'll speak again.
1: Yeah, we're certain. Well, have enjoyed the rest of your birthday, and we'll speak soon again. Bye bye.